Welcome back, everybody, to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. I'm Christopher Carter. And we're brought to you in association with the British Association for the Study of Religions and the North American Association for the Study of Religions. And more about that after the podcast. For now, let me introduce to you Craig Martin, who's talking to Dave McConaughey this week about identity and capitalism. How does that relate to religious studies? Well, let's find out, shall we? Hello, my name is David McConaughey, and today I'm at the 2015 meeting of the American Academy of Religion and uh, its affiliated partner, the North American Association for the Study of Religion. Today I'm joined with Craig Martin. Uh, Hello, Craig. Hello. Thanks. Uh, Craig is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at St. Thomas Aquinas College in New York. He is the author uh, or editor of several books including Capitalizing Religion, Ideology, and the Opiate of the Bourgeoisie, A Critical Introduction to the Study of Religion, Masking Hegemony, A Genealogy of Liberalism, Religion, and the Private Sphere, and Religion Experience, a Reader, among many other pieces. Uh, Today he joins me to discuss social theory, individualism, and religion, uh, I'd like to start by um, uh, quoting you to yourself, always that, that tough spot. Uh, in Capitalizing Religion, you write, there are no individuals. Uh, instead, what we think of as individualism is a, a construction of subjects whose agency and identity, uh, even their religious ones, is the work of empire, consumption, capitalist labor practices, ideology. Can you explain uh, how you came to claim that uh, there are no individuals? What's, what's wrong when Americans and, my, and anyone who might be listening wants to say, um, we're free to choose, the, uh, I am an individual, here I am? <laughs> um, uh, first, thanks for having me, David. And uh, so individualism, what's wrong with individualism? And, and uh, of course, like like all concepts, they could have various uses. Uh, of course, there are individuals in some sense. Um, for instance, you, I have a driver's license with a different name on it than you have, and if I got uh, pulled over by a cop, they would call me to court instead of you. They treat us as different subjects. Um, what's crucial for me when I say there are no individuals, I'm talking about um, the idea that we are individual agents whose uh, volunteer, uh, voluntarism uh, allows us to somehow escape the chains of cause and effect that we suppose everything else in the universe is bound by. Right. So it's kind of a, a, an illusion, a fantasy that uh, certain things in our life that we get to choose them as opposed to structures that condition those choices. Yeah, structures that shape our uh, shape our subjectivity and predetermine our agency in a variety of ways. I suppose there there could be total freedom at some level. I mean, from what I understand of quantum physics, uh, things at the submolecular level do things that are literally unpredictable. Um, but when it comes to social groups, um, on the one hand, evidence seems to show that people abide by the social structures that um, invest certain uh, forms of power in them. But on the other hand, and, and this is like even if we were free, 
uh, to escape the change of cause and effect. I feel like it should be a methodological principle from the perspective of social theory to say we're going to assume that that's not the case. Because if we're saying that like what causes your behavior is something that's uncaused, that's like saying we don't know why it happened. Right. And it, at that point, we're no longer doing scholarship. Um, we're talking about chance and then that's that's like I don't know if, if there's some part of my brain that rolls the dice every time I make a decision understanding that doesn't help me understand my behavior any better right the choices that we make are conditioned not just by our choice in that moment but all the moments that preceded them and yeah. all the structures that we exist in so yeah you know my decision to be here at this conference <laughs> predicated on certain things that have happened and yeah. as opposed to being at another conference this weekend right and so once I'm here though uh, my choices are very limited. Attend a panel, don't attend. Right? <laughs> talk to you here, don't talk to you. So, yeah. so uh, I don't feel very free. Um, but maybe I still feel like an individual in some sense. So, can we differentiate the the choice then? If choice isn't the right way to think about it, what's the alternative? Yeah. Well, in in capitalizing religion, one of the things I talk about in the chapter on Durkheim is that I think he speaks about individuals in two completely opposite ways, and I like one of them and I don't like the other one. One is the idea that I'm criticizing that people are free agents who whose choices escape causation or social structure. The other way he talks about it is that with a society with a high division of labor, subjects are different from one another. So in that case, individualism doesn't mean uh, free agents, it means just difference from other subjects in the system. So, so that, for instance, uh, uh, what I do as a professor, the ideologies or discourses that structure my life are different than the ones that structure, uh, you know, uh, bureaucrats in China, right? The, the, uh, and it doesn't mean I'm free because I'm different from them. It just means that I'm structured differently than they are. And for, for Durkheim, when I, when I think he's on the right track, he points out that, um, we become individuals in the sense that we're different from other subjects, uh, just as a result of the high, division of labor where we're all doing different things right. and we require different discourses to do the different things we're doing. Right. As opposed to uh, Her Herbert Spencer, the yeah. representative of maybe free will as choice, right? Yeah. You are free to do all things because it is uh, theoretically possible for you to do them. Yeah. And well, so, so the reason why you bring up Spencer, I'm assuming, is because uh, that's one of the things I talk about in Capitalizing Religion. Yeah, in, in contrast Dur to Durkheim. Yeah, Durkheim. And see, this is where Dur uh, Durkheim kind of cracks me up. He'll have a, a whole thing where he's saying why Spencer is full of crap. Um, that Spencer suggests that, uh, and it's kind of a, a, a neoliberal or a... Uh, um, uh, yeah, a neoliberal view where the more advanced we become as a society, the fewer social constraints we will have, and the more we will have liberal agents who are free from any kind of social constraints. Progress is freedom. Yeah, progress as freedom from specifically from social constraints. And Durkheim says, well, this is idiotic. It's pretty clear that as society is advanced, of course, I wouldn't use the kind of evolutionary theory that he would in incur, but as societies become more complicated, Durkheim says, there are actually more constraints. That um, uh, in a society with a high division of labor, we have institutions that regulate traffic, commerce, 
education, like the number of branches of government today as opposed to 100 years ago is uh, huge, hugely different. And Dirk comes like, it's clear that as societies get more complicated, there are more and more and more regulations. Right. That's, that's when he's arguing against Spencer. But then on the flip side, when Durkheim wants to show that primitive savages are inferior to modern Western Europeans, he says that, well, modern Western Europeans are better because they are more free from social constraints, right. which is exactly the opposite of what he yeah. said when he was arguing yeah. with Spencer. He, he wants to have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. So, so, it, so if, we can't, if we can't do either of those things, <laughs> if we have to choose one of them, the choice for you is pretty clear. Yeah, I go with the Durkheim that argues against Spencer that we are in, uh, increasingly constrained by all sorts of social structures, discourses, habits, uh, and I would bring Bourdieu in here to talk about habitus and, right. and uh, the incorporation of schemes of classification, etc. So yeah, um, that's that's the track that I go down. And from that, from that perspective of going down that path rather than the other, when people say, oh, you know, we can explain X, Y, and Z because these people made free choices, that's like saying they did it because of magic that we can't understand, right. uh, which is, again, no explanation at all. Even if we were free, I would want to set that aside as not a good answer. <laughs> yeah. So, so in that sense, um, social theorists really uh, make the work of individualism clear, right? Make, make the process of it, the structuring of it, and then from our perspective, then the interpretation of it, they really open those doors. So folks like Bourdieu or perhaps Durkheim in some moments, yeah. but not others. Yeah. Um, why is that? Is it all social theory or just a subset of them? Uh, well, yeah, of course, they're all different kinds of social <laughs> yeah, theorists. Right? I don't want to be an essentialist about social theory. Uh, and and there are some of the criticisms of capitalizing religion is that I don't take the sociological work on agency seriously enough. So, yeah, there's there are clearly some out there who want to appeal, appeal to freedom of choice. Uh, it just, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's because of my ingrained sympathies. Of course, as a, as a structuralist, I would appeal to ingrained sympathies, <laughs> but because of the sympathies ingrained in me, that uh, that doesn't seem like a live option. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think it places you within the world of social theory arguing certain constructed elements, right? Yeah. Agency is a construction for you of social pressures and forces, and so yeah. if you try to grab an individual and claim agency for them, for you, we must always frame it within a context. For someone else, they might be trying to essentialize the agency that is open to people rather than trying to talk about the structures that are repressing that, that essential. Right. Well, and if I could add to that, for me, I mean, I think that we, rather than just simply ignore the the claims of individualism, we have to analyze what what social work is yeah. the claim that we are exempt from social work. What 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 work does that do? And I think that, and I argue in the book that that um, it obscures the extent to which social forces have a constraint on us. But I mean, if if that's the work, right? Social theory is the is the is the portal through which we can walk to really clarify uh, if we're not individuals. Uh, here is an individualism that is acted upon by those forces. And in that sense, uh, okay, let's say that we put aside the argument with the people that want to say we have lots of agency. The rest of your argument probably still stands. And, it, and in fact, in fact, doesn't make it any less convincing. It just 
uh, says, well, maybe there are some other parts of what it means to be an individual that aren't covered. But of course, yeah. I think you argue convincingly, and perhaps you can <laughs> tell us about it, uh, that uh, uh, this narrative in the modern world uh, of um, spirituality as personal religion, uh, spirituality as uh, your freedom to choose your own religious beliefs, I think within your framework, I really uh, do think that social theory kind of brings that clarity that says this is all a kind of a farce. Yeah. Well, so the the last chapter in the book um, talks about individualism as a type of theodicy, right? right? So what causes evil in the world? Uh, well, you know, Augustine will say it's free will. Yeah. Free will um, causes evil in the world. And I argue that individualism is kind of a the- theodicy of capitalism so that, you know, why do poor people suffer? Well, one answer, and a lot of forms of spirituality offer this as an answer, well, it's because of the individuals and the individual choices. They could have chosen differently, and they didn't, so it's their fault. That's 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 Weber, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. all tied up in the Calvinist yeah. scheme, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and and, uh, and uh, I'm indebted to Weber and Durkheim yeah. for the oh, analyses yeah. that I'm doing there. As, uh, as we all yeah. seem, seem to irrevocably be. Right? So so okay so so if capitalism uh, frames the narrative as good and evil and then it says if you're being an individual and you fail at it then you're evil right or bad, or or, wrong, or, or it's your own fault because own fault. you have you could have chosen otherwise so it, what well, does the system encourage that <laughs> Well, let me give like a concrete example. So um, uh, Eckhart Tolle, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now, right, um, is this kind of positive thinking spirituality that you, um, with through the power of positive thinking, uh, kind of like... The, yeah, yeah. You, you can attract good things to you. Um, and if you are suffering, it's your own fault. Your own fault. And he goes even so far as to say that if you think properly, you uh, will not get sick and you will stop aging. Right. So he extends this not just to like mental or cognitive aspects, like you know psychological wellness or something. He extends it to even yeah, apparently it has magic effects on your bodies. Right. So that and and he gives the example of one at one point that a, a woman who's boyfriend beats her it's her own fault because she invited the negativity to her it, it's, it's, it's to deal with material that seems to suggest right that uh individuals that the outside world might see as suffering from forces outside of their control to then present a medical theological spiritual guideline that yeah. says look uh, these things might be out of your control uh but you're responsible for thinking of them in yeah. good or bad ways, and then you are to, to have to take responsibility for it, right? Yeah, and not well. I think on the one hand, it blames the victim, or well, okay, so that's that's a that's a rhetorical way to put it. It um, it assigns blame to the people who are perhaps the weakest in power in the situation, um, and at the same time, perhaps justifies. Uh, doing nothing, it perhaps justifies making no so no changes to the social structure, right? Why don't we need welfare? Well, because poor people should just get a job, uh, or or um, or or making those who are very successful feel self justified, right? I deserved everything. 
that I earned because uh, I was thinking positively all along. So, so does that mean at the end that that if we were to take your work as kind of you know an argument purely about social theory, I think we'd be wrong, right? I think at the end, the kind of claim behind the claim, and perhaps it comes through um, with more or less directness by by the end, uh, is uh, individualism is uh, the way that capitalism creates a spirituality that perpetuates capitalism. It perpetuates capitalism, perpetuates asymmetrical power relations. Now, obviously, I don't think that individualism is alone responsible for all that, but that it's one of many things that uh, our modern regime has in place to uh, reinforce the status quo in certain ways. Yeah. So so the, the one that really got me um, uh, in terms of example was Christopher Moore's uh, 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 have you used that class in with with your students at all? I, I used that once a long time ago, and it didn't go well. It didn't go well. <laughs> I, it, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> that, I mean, I, I, I'm a, actually a pretty big fan of Christopher Moore. Um, his, his Vampire Trilogy is one of my one of my favorite. Uh, I think it's a hilarious series. Um, but and and I even find. Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal, to be a very entertaining uh, novel. But I think it has a neoliberal ideology embedded in it. Um, and my students right, my st- students don't like criticizing, criticizing things that they enjoy. Um, so having that ironic distance from something that they enjoyed on the one hand, it was, it was difficult for me to persuade them. Uh, well, so let me, I guess I should probably explain how that novel has a neoliberal ideology in it. Uh, if, if you like, I think that would be useful. Um, for, for readers that are listening in, can you just give a, you know, one sentence description of what? Yeah. Uh, the message that Jesus has is that religion should mind its own business and let the government do what the government does, uh, and that you are free if you are free inside. Yes. So that, that well, it, the Jesus in the narrative at one point says something like, uh, Moses didn't have to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. They could have been free if only they realized they were free within, yeah. which is basically like saying that slavery is okay as long as, you feel free inside, <laughs> and, and which is you know not not to not to be unduly political about it, but that is a political message that has been uttered in tones about American slavery and about the perception of this. So this is while we might getting a fictional presentation of it as a neoliberal thing, this is an actual historical argument that yeah. politicians have been using, for instance, yeah. in recent political uh, presidential electoral stuff uh, here. So timely, timely stuff. Your students didn't respond to that. Well, this was like maybe, <laughs> this is probably 10 years ago yeah. when I tried this, and I was a novice teacher, so there's more things going, going into my failure yeah. than just my choice there. So, what struck me about it in, in a number of ways was, uh, number one, how, how challenging it must be to, to work with, with a text like that. When, when you bring a text like that in, let's say you're going to take, and I think you probably would like to take almost any object, right? Almost any object and bring it in. Yeah, I don't. I don't discriminate. I'll. I'll. Yeah. I'll direct my analytical gaze at anything that. Well, 
what directs my gaze is my interest as a scholar and whatever fits those interests, whether it's a novel, a uh, spirituality book, um, uh, people who say I'm spiritual but not religious, any of those things could right. be data for the kind of narrative that I'm constructing. And, and in part, at least, the presidential politics, for instance, and Christopher Lamb's book suggest, uh, and Eckhart Tolle, or Tolle, however yeah. you're supposed to say his name, uh, that the kind of broad reach of these things, the, oh. the, the fingers are everywhere. Yeah. Right, in, all of, in all of the works. One, one, of the, one of the things, I really like Thomas Luckman. Well, I have a love-hate relationship yeah. with Thomas Luckman, as I do with Durkheim. Mostly love, though. Anyhow, Dur, uh, uh, Luckman says that in late capitalism or in, in advanced capitalist societies, there doesn't need to be an overarching ideology, that the system just runs itself right. and it doesn't need a justification. And I see the ideology of individualism saturating all forms of our culture. And I'm like, well, if there was going to be something like a totalizing ide ideology, individualism might be it, uh, which is why we, uh, why we can find it everywhere. Of course, maybe I find it everywhere because I put it everywhere. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Doesn't it make you think, though, uh, and, you know, maybe maybe your students and my students at this part are, are uh, too young to remember the advent of the Apple ad, right, where, where there's the 1984 droning black and white people at their desks working and all of a sudden... I do not recall this. comes in and, and uh, it's a sports person and they hurl the, the Olympic hammer uh, through the screen of the overload that's there, right? I, I think... Um, I think for Nike, right, to to emphasize that it's overcoming the drowning outness of of um, uh, you know bureaucratic modern office life uh, by articulating a vision of ourselves where we break free, right, is so ironic. Uh, just in the same way that fashion, I think, for you identifies an area where where we can say uh, you're only an individual. If you are participating in the culture of fashion, where we all get to be individual, yeah. <laughs> in individual way, right? we're all individuals. We're like when we're all ubermenches. <laughs> Perhaps none of us are ubermenches. <laughs> so, in all of this, for an audience that that may be thinking about religious studies, um, what would be what would be the lesson that we would want to take into the classroom when we approach material that does seem to be produced in an age uh, where we have these um, uh, ideological individualism appearing? So how do we take that lesson and then bring it into the to the selection, perhaps, I think you and I agree, of almost any text? Right. Well, I mean... Sometimes in the classroom, I sound an awful lot like a vulgar Marxist that mm -hmm. that the base determines the superstructure, and right. and I wouldn't I uh, I'm I'm not a vulgar Marxist, but I'm often thinking along those lines. And I think when you look at modern quote unquote religious culture, it's totally shaped by um, well at least here neoliberal ideology um, and uh, capitalist uh, norms, etc. So that you can look at why why does Christianity in the 21st century look different than people who claim to be Christian in the 5th century? Well, it's because the mode of production has changed. That's part of what's going on. Not all of it, but that's a huge part of what's going on, which allows us to bring in right all these modern forms of religiosity, spirituality, Christianity, Judaism, etc. Um, how has 
the changing mode of production produce different forms of culture and and to uh, even if we can't make strong causal claims suggest some possible causal connections between the two and so if we don't if we don't sufficiently theorize the way that that's been done if we try to do comparative work and try to understand how people are relating to the West maybe they're seeing that and we're not Understanding that that's our projection of ourselves, right? Yeah. Or, or if we just want to bring clarity to the moment that we're in now, and we don't acknowledge uh, those things, either way, right? We we need to find a way out of that wood. Yeah. Also, I'm not going to lie. Part of it's just a sadistic enjoyment at uh, dismantling things right, <laughs> and right. picking a, picking them apart. That that's its own kind of aesthetic pleasure that that some academics get. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but but the 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 desire to deconstruct things that seem on their face rather obvious. Yeah, that that's oftentimes the most challenging. That uh, the, how do you get a fish to see the water? Uh, right. Uh, that, exactly. That uh, yeah, that's so, hard. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm struck, and um, I know you've discussed this um, in uh, in previous interviews and and discussions on this. Um, but I have to say, on a personal level, reading uh, the work, uh, you write about how um, your father's experience and his influence uh, really kind of lay behind a little bit of the motive for the work. Um, could you comment on that at, at the end here? But, but also because I think you and I, uh, earlier today, we participated in a panel where um, there was a lot of dialogue uh, and rather heated back and forth. Uh, about, to say the least, yeah, to say the least. <laughs> it was a lively. It was a lively session uh, about um, what is our role as scholars, and, and I think um, uh, your invocation of the motives for writing uh, suggests that when we put on our academic caps, sometimes we forget the humanness that we have when we are not wearing those hats. Uh, and your work seems to cross the bridge there, effectively. I hope so. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think as uh, someone who's read a lot of Nietzsche and Foucault, I think that people who deny that their interests lying behind their work are either lying or ignorant about <laughs> what motivates their work. So I try to be, uh, I don't let the interest predetermine the results in advance, but the interests that I have direct the gaze of my analytical gaze, right? I wouldn't have been, uh, Eckhart Tolle wouldn't have been of interest to me, perhaps, if my dad had had different experiences. Uh, uh, the fact that my dad uh, suffered economic collapse at the end of his life uh, as a result of a number of things, including the 2008 stock market crash, um, make me wonder, like, how how is it that uh, when social structures seem so apparent to me to direct so much, why do people say, oh, it's just all individuals and individual choices? So, yeah, that motive, like thinking about my father motivates me to analyze the material in a way different than I might have done if I hadn't had that experience. But I also hope that the conclusions that I reach could be convincing to even to somebody who doesn't share my experience or doesn't have my interests that um and that's why i said earlier uh the interests direct my research but hopefully don't predetermine the results um uh but yeah i think we're always interested all the way down even if our only interest is to uh 
put food on the table, as they were saying in the last section, uh, that uh, bringing home a paycheck motivates us to publish or perish sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but, but, I mean, isn't, isn't that in, in and of itself your effort to kind of deconstruct your dad a little bit, but also yourself and the task of scholars, right, as individuals? Well, yeah, it's, well, in a shed light, yeah, what we do is not free-floating, <laughs> yeah. but tied into uh, conditions and conditions that put in place incentives for us to do X rather than Y. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, whenever I think about people who look at someone and say th- their behavior is crazy, why would they ever do that? My first response is to say, well, are they in some sort of set of social conditions that incentivize that behavior? Um, uh, but then maybe I'm just being a reductionist. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that that it, in our attempt to to make clear the motives of the subjects that that we study, uh, never mind how we came to select those subjects, right? Which is always worth considering because sometimes it really does uh, influence or potentially reveal the influence that we've had on, on our data. But but oftentimes though, um, we are effectively able to step back. From the material, and when we do that, we want to be able to talk about the subjects that are there in some way uh, that is effective, right? Yeah, uh, and, and if we were doing research that was completely interest-free, I'm not sure that it would be of interest to anyone. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so per- perhaps a, li- a little bit of an attack there, maybe a tiny bit of a hint of an attack. Uh, theory for theory's sake, right? <laughs> Not, not really so much a theories for theory's sake, it, insofar as maybe if you were to engage in the deconstructing process, well, that theorist needs to put another work of theory on the table in, yeah. in front of them. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of go, and I think I learned this from the pragmatists, although it might have been via my doctoral advisor. Um, at one point, it was suggested for, for theory, this distinction. Uh, is it useful or not, right? So it's not whether the distinction is true or false. It's like, do we gain anything by making this distinction? And if, in fact, there are zero practical consequences whatsoever for making the distinction, it might not be a useful one to make. Uh, somehow that tied directly to something I thought you said, but I lost my train of thought. It did. And, <laughs> and, and I think it's a great way to end, because I think that's such a powerful kind of uh, legacy through through your work, right? That... Um, uh, your motives for doing the thing, right, uh, don't mean that the thing was useful. The thing itself and what you've done make it useful or not useful. And um, whether or not people agree with you about the uh, way that you've constructed agency, right, or individualism, uh, if the way that you have done it is useful and brings clarity to certain other kinds of texts, then we've really done something useful, right? Thank you. As, uh, I'll take that as an endorsement. <laughs> I, think, I think you should. Uh, and I encourage your readers to uh, visit this and more of your works. And uh, we thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, David. Great. Thank you. Great to hear another interview from Dave there. And fantastic to get Craig onto the RSP. He has participated in um, a roundtable discussion for us. Um, I think the title was Identity or Identification um, that Culture on the Edge recorded a while back, but it's great to have him in a sole, solo interview. He also commented on one of our edited episodes, I believe, but I can't remember which one. And I don't think he did. He did. He sent in a recording. Remember, he recorded it himself and sent it in. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretty sure he did, but anyway, well, we can... 
I'll, I'll put that in the show notes, okay, when I, when I find out which one it is. I tell you what, though, <laughs> after that discussion about capitalism, it's nice to remember that the Religious Studies Project is free um, at point of views for everyone um, on Always Has Been, and that includes, from this week, over 180 podcasts. Mm-hmm. And they're available on iTunes, on our website, you can subscribe via RSS, you can subscribe via email, you can find us on Facebook, um, on Google+, and now on YouTube. One thing we would ask, however, is if the, you enjoy using the podcast, that you uh, can use our Amazon affiliate links, that's uh, .co.uk.ca and .com, because that gives us uh, a little kickback from everything that you buy, not only religious studies materials, but anything else that you're buying on Amazon at no additional cost to you, and goes a long way to help supporting the project. Absolutely. On the YouTube front, we have also um, recently put in a a nice order for some equipment, um, Mm -hmm. video equipment, lights and such. So um, although you can't really expect to see video content anytime soon and we're definitely toying with it the equipment is coming in so it's gonna happen well we're going to be testing it out uh, very soon um when we take a trip down to milton Keynes, chris yes we're going down to the open university uh, a sort of event that's been brokered by our good friend marion bowman and um, we're going to be doing another digital humanities workshop like we did um at the university of chester back in October of 2014. Um, And we're also hoping to record maybe a roundtable or maybe an interview or two um, with some of the faculty there. We've got Paul Tremlett, Graham Harvey um, and Marion. And we've got um, the wonderful RSP social media interim editor, Alid Thomas, is based um, at the OU as well. So we'll certainly get him involved in some capacity. Indeed. Indeed. So hopefully we will be putting the first uh, video content, uh, sort of new video content up um, as a result of that workshop. But more on that as and when it happens. Yeah. Um, so we do have some more news for you, but we're going to save that for next week, I think, because that's been... It's been a good bit of news for you just there. But next week, we've got uh, Sidney Castillo back again, um, interviewing James Reagan Manville. And the interview's entitled Nature Alive, Amazonian Religion in Peru. So it's, it's a great look at some of the, quote, indigenous, unquote, um, practices. He's an anthropologist. And, and also talking about the, the sort of effects of you know, Jesuit missionary and things like that. So it'll be good. Indeed. And don't forget to come back for the response to this episode on Thursday. Now, if you're a regular listener to the RSP and you enjoy reading these um, uh, responses that we put out every week, why not sign up to get involved yourself? If you drop an email with your your email address in it to editors at Religious Studies Project, then Tommy will add you to the list of the pool of respondents. And every time we send out an email from Kevin looking for new responses to unreleased episodes you'll get one of those emails and can uh, volunteer your services yeah and it's quite nice to get a, get a podcast ahead of the game as it were you know like you're getting into the insider knowledge of what goes on behind the scenes it's a, yeah, yeah it's, it's a good way of getting into the inner sanctum indeed and religious studies project is and will always be a collaborative effort so please do get involved we look forward to hearing from you i'm done yeah me too Thanks for listening.